When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. It's Get Your Ears Round, a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. Yes, hello, welcome along. Our guest today, opening the diary of her working day, it's Marianne Kavanagh. Now, her book, Should You Ask Me, it's a novel, and it's kind of hard to pinpoint the genre of it, really. It's fine, try to be offended. We had a long chat about this very thing. There's murders in there, there's mystery, there's some thriller bits, there's crime, there's romance, there's some philosophy. And it's all very good, which is the thing that matters. Now, we talk about the phenomenal amount of research that she did for years before even typing a word of the book. Also, we find out how much fun she had with historical language and tone and why writing her 86-year-old protagonist was a challenge and also a real joy to get right. And we find out how she views the whole editing process. As I say, I think I'm a slow writer. I think I, I, I work and work and work until it's the best it can be. And I, I don't think I mind how often I have to keep rewriting until it gets to the best it can be. So stay there. It's all on the way with this week's writer's routine. Hello then. Yeah, lovely to have you there. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming back if you've been here before. My name is Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine. It's the podcast that takes you inside the intricacies and the nuances of an author's working day. And we try and get a glimpse and steal anything that we can use to help our own creativity, really. Now, I'm back recording in the flat again today, so you might need to forgive the slight echo and the roomy sound and and bear with the occasional tweet from the incessant birds that never stop droning on outside. Honestly, I don't know what type of tweet is more annoying. One from a blackbird outside that just keeps going on while you're trying to record, or a misspelt one from Donald Trump declaring war. Anyway, please bear with that. And I want to give some massive thanks to all the love and the messages uh, that I've had following last week's episode of Writer's Routine with Natasha Scripture. It's always nice to have a change, isn't it? And when we're speaking to so many, fantastic, it has to be said, but they are straight novel writers, it's quite nice to speak to someone working in non-fiction and memoir. It gives us an insight into how all manner of writers get the story that they're trying to tell, uh, be it made up or true, down onto paper. And for someone to be as 
philosophical, kind and enterprising as Natasha to come on the show. It was brilliant and I'm so glad you enjoyed it. If you missed any of it, please go and have a listen uh, to the last episode of Writer's Routine. And actually, if you've enjoyed any of the shows that we've done so far, please do tell someone about it. Now, there are two ways that you can do that. Number one is to let someone that you know know about the show. Maybe if you're in a writer's group, you can mention it to them. Uh, If you're headed to a writer's retreat, perhaps download a whole bunch of episodes to your phone that you can force people to listen to while they've got nothing better to do while you're down there. Or maybe you've got a mate who is struggling to get their idea down onto paper. Please just uh, give them a prod and remind them that we've got over 30 fantastic authors full of tips that they've got to help them out right here on the show. Now, you can also tell people that you don't know about Writer's Routine too. You could do that by flyering, I guess. I can send you the Photoshop JPEGs and PNGs if you fancy. Or maybe with a loud hailer down the street, just catcalling any randomer. I tell you, though, the easiest way to let someone that you don't know know about the show is to get over to the iTunes podcast store and leave us a review. So get on there, find Writer's Routine, drop your name, let us know what you think, and then it'll push us up the podcast chart and it'll let people who may find this useful know who we are and how much there is for them to catch up on. That's the best way, I assure you. Just get over to the iTunes podcast store and find Writer's Routine. Today's guest with her Writer's Routine is Marianne Kavanagh. Now, before we sat down to chat, I spoke to her in the lift on the way up to the publisher's office and she was telling me that her and her son were talking about the interview the night before and what she should say about the work that she does every day. And apparently... Her son was trying to get her to prank me and to just rattle off a list of the dull tasks uh, that that she does and and that she had no other thoughts on the craft of writing to say and that might have been a bit of a challenging 40-minute interview. But thankfully, she didn't listen because you've got a great, deep, nuanced and really niche chat on the way. It's all about how an idea gets mulled over in your brain, how it's researched through reading, and then it's written down and edited. Now, should you ask me, is Marianne's third novel, and it's a murdery, mystery, thrillery, romancy, history book. It's kind of hard to pin the genre down, and we chat about why in a little bit. It's all about the 86-year-old Mary, who heads to a police station in the early 1940s and confesses to a crime. Now we hear the poetic recounting of it and see the impact that it has on the police officer William who takes the statement and why it forces him to confront the demons of his own past. Now Marianne and I, we talk about formatting the book and why it's laid out the way it is, how much research and how many years of planning went into the plot and also why she takes such great care with language and makes sure that the next word is perfect for the setting. And we start our chat with Marianne Kavanagh as we start most of our chats on this show with the place that she sits down to write. A room on the ground floor of our house, which has a big piano in it. It's not a big room, but it has a big piano in it. And my desk and then a floor to ceiling bookshelf, which is full of books. So it's a good place to be. And what are you facing? Facing, um, I used for a long time, I used to just face a blank white wall. Um, But I've recently put a print up there for no particular reason, except that I really like the picture. But I don't tend to look at it very much while I'm working. What is the picture? What is the print? (laughs) It's a print from the National Gallery, and it's a Joseph Wright painting. um, And it's called something like 
a bird in an air pump or something like that. It's a 1780-something painting, and it's by Candlelight, and there are lots of faces around looking at a central man who is carrying out a new experiment into a vacuum pump. So the bird is going to die, which is incredibly sad. And all the faces around in the candlelight are really quite arresting. It tells a story. It's a picture that's telling a huge story. Well, speaking of stories in the room, then, if we were to spin <laughs> around and look at your bookshelf, yes. what, what type of trove would we see? What are you taking inspiration from there? Well, a lot of fiction, a lot of fiction that I've read for years and years. So books that I come back to, um, also new fiction, um, reference books, um, oh, very little factual stuff, I'm afraid. Uh, a few biographies, but nearly all of it is fiction. The book, should you ask me, I've got it in paperback in front of me. Yes. Uh, are we calling this th- Thriller and psychological drama, that's the genre that we're going for. Um, I think so. I i think this book has caused a little bit of a headache because it's spanning quite a few different genres. Um, so, um, yes, it is. It's a, it's a thriller. It's a murder mystery. It's a psychological drama. Um, it is also historical fiction, but the history isn't sounds ridiculous the historical setting is very important but the history doesn't have much to do with the story the story could have happened at any time it just so happened to have happened uh, in the victorian period it's possible that this particular book should you ask me does span so many different kinds of genres because actually i do too i i i do I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, an unflattering word for myself, but I, I, I do read anything and everything with with interest. I'm obviously reading a lot of contemporary modern fiction, um, but I do read historical fiction. I, I love um, conventional uh, detective and thriller type fiction. I, I particularly like Patricia Highsmith. I think she's wonderful. Um, so I I. Yes, I am quite eclectic. I read lots of different things. And I think you'd probably think my bookshelves reflected that. There's, you know, I've got everything from the classics to modern novels. And I have to say, again, we'll talk more about this in just a bit, but I think that is reflected in your work. I can see why there is this confusion and controversy over where it should sit in Waterstones. So the show is called Writer's Routine. Yes. Tell me about yours. The moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day where you are writing, how does it work? Okay, well, I've been thinking about this because I have been listening to some of your other podcasts because I think it's a a great idea. It's really interesting. Um, This might sound a little bit complicated, but I think my routine would depend a lot um, on what kind of work I'm doing because I'm sure you will know this because you've interviewed so many writers, but writing is just a small part of a writer's life. If you're you're doing it as a job, um, obviously it's fine and, and wonderful to write for pleasure, but if you're writing as a job... Only about a third of your life probably is writing. Um, another third will be uh, constant rewriting, trying to trying to bring this book to the best possible book it could be. And another third will be trying to make connections and trying to help people to hear about the book and, and, and being involved in marketing and publicity. So just at the moment, m- my day is completely unusual because um, I have Should You Ask Me is out um, in paperback and it's it's wonderful so most of the work in publicising it has been done 
Um, and I've just finished my next novel, novel number four, um, which, as you heard just now, is going to be in proof next week. So at the moment, I have this blissful life of, of going around talking to people and having a nice time and meeting people and enjoying myself. Um, but when I'm in the thick of writing something, it's a completely different life. I, The only way I can write is to be obsessed with the project I'm doing, and I think that's probably the best word. So I would get up at five, probably having thought about the book all night. I would start working. Um, I would work for as long as I possibly could until I just run out of steam. Um, the rest of the day is spent just thinking about it, then collapsing into bed and starting all over again. I'm, I'm sure other people have a better and, and, and more rational routine, but when I'm in the thick of writing, that's all I can do. Funnily enough, there's a conversation going on Twitter this morning that I was reading about with um, lots of writers talking about um, their word count for a day, um, how many books they publish in a year, what their ideal word count for a day is. I really don't have that, and that's partly because I... I I think I, I'm doing a lot of revision while I'm writing, so there, there there may well be days when my word count is pathetic, because I've actually gone through what I've done the day before and slightly re-angled it and then added a bit more to it. Um, and then other days, I'll read back what I've done and I can just actually write quite a lot. Um, so no, I don't I don't have a um, an ideal word count I think I'm quite slow are there any idiosyncrasies that help you out along the way you wake up early in the morning because perhaps that's before your conscious mind has really kicked into gear yeah. are there anything else that you've developed having published your third book <laughs> that you find helps you write in, in a more efficient manner for yourself yes um I find I do a lot of writing when I'm not sitting there so even though my I've talked about the room I, I write in it's on the ground floor and it's next to the kitchen um, so uh, quite often without even thinking about it very much I'll get up and I'll go and put the washing on and it's while I'm selecting a particular program for whatever the family washing in is I'll, I'll suddenly work out a sentence that's been worrying me so I do find a lot of the time that I wander around the house thinking almost writing in my head and then I come back and and set it down let's talk about the writing routine um of a book then rather than of the day you yes. you mentioned earlier that you've got the fourth novel yes out to proof yes. and that at the moment you're in in perfect bliss because <laughs> you're not actually putting pen to paper you're chatting to people like me and how lovely it is oh well, thank you very much <laughs> how does a book get to where it is now for you I chatted to an author recently um who, who claimed that he had a two draft book that was it he, he, he submits his first draft it's in such perfect immaculate order that the second draft is pretty much just dotting a few i's crossing a few t's how about it for you when you finally got down that first draft and and it's been a bit of a slog you finally written the end then what happens to it for you how, how many times do you need to rewrite what goes on with that book before it sat down on the table in front of me um a lot of rewrites. Um, I, sh I should perhaps say, first of all, that I have lovely friends who are not writer friends, um, but they are readers. They love reading and they always get my first draft. And the, the deal is that they say very honestly what they think. Um, with the book that's just gone into proof, the very first draft was so awful that nobody had much to say except... Um, yeah, I, I, I think this, this, this could be good. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was deeply embarrassing, and I loved them all, and they were all honest, and it was, it was awful. The first draft was really bad. Why? why? 
Why was why was it awful? Um, why was it awful? Um, with the fourth book, because I was struggling to find a way to tell the story. I knew what the story was, but I couldn't find a way in. And in fact, the fourth book called Disturbance, which is now in proof, uh, is now in the third person written from Sarah's point of view. In the very first draft, um, it was... Um, in the third person, but told from a different character's point of view. In the second draft, it was in Sarah's person, but told from the first person. I can't tell you how many different times I had to write this story to get to the best version it could That's be. That's so many rewrites. I know. So I find it interesting how changing the perspective of your story could affect the way it's told to such an extent that the first time you penned it, it was just atrocious. Yes, uh, but it does. It does um, um, enormously. And I, I'm, I was thinking the other thing as well as I as I was coming here is that in every book I've ever written, there's, there, there has always been a couple of scenes which never really change. Um, that was true of the fourth book. It was true of Should You Ask Me as well. There's always um, a couple of really strongly visual scenes which seem to be what the book hangs on. Um, they hardly ever change. I mean, obviously, um, with the fourth book, I did change the point of view, but the story was the same in those scenes. Um, I don't know. I, as I say, I think I'm a slow writer. I think I, I, I work and work and work until it's the best it can be. And I I don't think I mind how often I have to keep rewriting until it gets to the best it can be. I need to say sorry, I've I've taken up so much of our time gassing on about your fourth book, which is not the one you're here to sell. You're here to sell, should you ask me, it's out in paperback. Talk to me about the first moment that the idea for this story came into your head. I will. Um, it was a family holiday about 15 years ago, and we were sitting... Um, we were staying in a uh, Victorian stonecutter's cottage on the Isle of Purbeck in Dorset. Um, it's a very atmospheric part of the world. Um, because uh, it's it's um, not attached to the mainland, you have to get a chain link ferry across from Poole to get to the Isle of Purbeck. Um, it isn't as modernised in lots of ways as other parts of the country are. And it is breathtakingly beautiful. So I felt somehow staying in this Victorian cottage that I was stepping back in time a little bit. And I picked up a book that happened to be in the cottage called Purbeck Island by the late Rodney Legg, who's a historian. Um, took it with me for the day. We were sitting on the beach and I, was, I read a tiny snippet of a story about the landlord of a pub um, in 1878. His name was John Ball. And um, he didn't get on very well with his wife. And one day he grabbed a shotgun, ran up the road, fired at her, missed, came back to the pub and turned the gun on himself. And because he'd committed suicide in those days, he couldn't be buried in the churchyard. He had to be buried in a field, not in consecrated, consecrated ground, um, miles away from the village. And I just looked up from the book, sitting on the beach, to this beautiful blue sky, and I thought, what if it was all an elaborate charade? Perhaps he didn't kill himself at all. Perhaps... He had to get out of the village for some reason and pretend to be dead. So that's what started the book, that first little thought. So the, the whole book, Should You Ask Me, started with the Victorian story, the Victorian love triangle, um, and the story that Mary Holmes in the book is very slowly telling to William, the young constable. 
And it was sometime later when I was thinking about what it would be like to have that secret, to hold that secret all your life, that I realised that somebody born then would be a very old lady just before um, the Second World War finished. And I knew that Dorset had this huge build-up of troops and ammunition. And um, I'd been reading a lot of local history and and eyewitness accounts. Um, And I knew it had completely changed the county. It felt the huge tension of something being about to happen. And I thought... If you were going to confess to murder, if you were going to finally confess your secret that you'd held for a long, long time, what better time to do it than when the rest of the world was actually concerned about something completely different? You know, when everybody's attention was not on what happened to you years ago, but was on this massive final push to invade Europe. And that's how it started. I hadn't written a historical book before, and I was quite desperate to be accurate, um, partly because it felt a sense of responsibility for the, because it was a, a true story, the little snippet, a snippet originally, although I've obviously elaborated on it, but also talking about um, the Second World War in Dorset, I, it felt really important that um, I was true to what the experience was like for people living then. So I did just read and read and read. I probably read for, a, I don't know, a year just everything I could find. Um, I remember saying to my mum once that it it feels at the beginning as if you're looking at people through a sort of mist. You can't quite see them. And then gradually, the more you read and the more you think, they start becoming more real. Um, And you can not necessarily visualise them in terms of their faces and what they're wearing, but somehow get a sense of them and you can visualise them going about their everyday life. So I could imagine... Mary as a young woman in Langton Matravers um, in a tiny, tiny community uh, with a pub and a church. And then I could imagine her later in the market town of Wareham as an elderly woman. We went to Wareham many, many times <laughs> and uh, uh, tramped it. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful town. It's got, old, it's got the old walls surrounding the town. Um, it's got uh, wonderful churches, old buildings. Um, so it, it yes, for me it's quite visual. It's it's picturing them almost, I suppose, as if they were in a film. What they would be doing as they go around their everyday lives. And when you finally do sit down in front of your laptop yes. to write this story, what do you know about it before you type that first word? How much of the tale is ready to go in your brain, or are you seeing through the mist, to use your metaphor, yeah. along the way? I think the the Victorian part of the story was pretty worked out because that was the first thing I'd thought about and I'd thought about it so hard and for so long. Um, there's a character called Arthur in the book who's a, an old childhood friend of Mary and John and he was particularly vivid for me. I the the later part of the story, the, the the Second World War part of the story with William, the young constable, was much later on. It was the very last thing I got round to because there was quite a lot of research about the military and about the army um, in the Second World War that I had to do for his story. I, I think, um, again, I don't know how usual this is, but I don't necessarily write chronologically. Um, I, I, I tend to write the scenes which are most vivid in my mind um, and gradually they start drawing together so it's it's um, the interlinking passages are the last ones I do and in fact when I delivered 
when the when my agent was happy with the manuscript and I delivered it here to Ruth at Hodder, um, she very kindly pointed out to me that I needed far more interlinking passages because it was just confusing. You know, I was expecting the reader to jump from time period to time period without easing them from one to the other. You look very puzzled. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm just... You must plan quite thoroughly then. You, you must really know what's going on throughout your book to be able to write key moments without knowing what's coming in between. Um, I know the dramatic moments. Yes, I do. I, I, I know the moments when there is going to be uh, most tension and most drama. When I suppose when, when the characters are angry or, or distressed or when the action is moving forward. I, I, I quite often know those scenes, even if I don't know what's happening in between. I do have a, um, a timeline, I call it. I don't know what else you'd, you'd call it, really. I, I make sure that I know the dates of the key events. And I had a timeline for the Victorian period and a timeline for the Second World War period. And then in the end, I was working out which would have the most dramatic juxtaposition, which which scene from from the Victorian period would most clearly either introduce or clash with a scene from the later period. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
We'll be back with more from Marianne Kavanagh in just a sec. I just wanted to take a quick moment, though, to remind you of all the ways that you can get in touch with the show. Uh, maybe you've got something that you want to let me know about, something that you've noticed with the podcast. Maybe you've got an author that you think I should be chatting to, someone that's written one of your favourite books. You want to hear the process of getting it out there. Uh, maybe you've got a question or you could be an author yourself and you've just published a book and you want to tell everyone all about it and how you wrote it well please do let me know that's fine you can do it on twitter we are at writers pod on there uh, also we're on instagram writers routine on that where you can see motivational quotes to get inspiration for your work every single day and you can find all the ways to listen to the show you can catch up with every episode we've done so far and you can send us a message on our website and that is writersroutine.com. let's get back to today's guest then on writers routine we're chatting to marianne kavanagh all about her third novel, Should You Ask Me. It's about the 86-year-old Mary who is finally confessing to a crime that she committed years ago and she's been brooding over ever since. And because of that, uh, she's going to take her time telling it. She does it in a brilliant, beautifully poetic way, though. Now we chat about how much fun it was to plan and sculpt Mary's character. Also, I'm quite curious about who actually owns an author's work once it's published. Now, not in the dull sense of law and copyright and plagiarism. No, but more, whose is it? Whose story does it become? And I ask Marianne, does she think the story is hers and it should always be interpreted in the way that she wrote it? Or when it's published, does it become the audience's? And does it live and breathe and grow once it's read? And we pick things up talking about editing and how she feels uh, about when she's finally finished and then she gets told she's got to write even more. By, by trade, by profession, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a journalist and I used to write very short pithy features for weekend supplements and things so I think I tend to edit myself down to the bare minimum um, but I know in Should You Ask Me at one point um, we were quite a long way through the editing process and uh, Ruth said to me it would be lovely if at this moment we could see William in the context of the people around him and I said oh I, actually I wrote that but I, I, I didn't include it um, so in that particular instance, it was just a matter of going back to a, 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 a draft, which I had done a long time ago, and reinstating it. The story is told by um, Mary. She's an 86-year-old, and she just she jumps off the page. I very rarely gush this much about an author's work when they're sat in front of me. But oh, she, and it's, it just must be quite a lot of fun to write someone like that, because I think as readers, we give a lot more time to old eccentric people and yes. possibly as a writer you can get away with a lot more talk to me about the development of mary as a character when she came into your mind how then you made her how are you making that novel new and believable i think possibly with mary it's because she started so strongly for me as a young woman um, because of that little snippet of story i was talking about so i i saw her initially um as a woman in her very early 20s and I was trying to think, um, obviously, at the time when um, uh, when these characters would have lived, a woman's life was pretty constrained, um, particularly the kind of close village life that she was part of. Um, it was very much about, you know, your job as a woman was looking after other people and doing a lot of real hard physical work. I mean, it was exhausting, the... the 
day-to-day job of, of, of cleaning and washing and all those things. And in my mind, Mary was somebody who did all those things but had, had, had spirit and life about her. Um, she had to be quite unusual because she ends up with two very different men desperately in love with her. So she had to be someone who was not only um, obviously um, a good-looking young woman but someone who had a lot of uh, spirit, had something unusual about her. So in a way that helped because when I was thinking about Mary as a much older woman, she was unusual in that at a time when women didn't have much chance to do this, she was an independent businesswoman. She had turned from a publican and then later on had run um, a smithy and then a garage. So she was an unusual woman to be a businesswoman in, in, in those days. So in a way, I think starting with the idea of a woman of spirit and then imagining um, a life when she had to earn her own living, she had to be independent, particularly when she was running a garage when cars began to arrive in the 1920s and 30s. Um, she was dealing with a lot of men who presumed she knew nothing and she had to constantly show how she was able to to um, employ the best mechanics and, and, and help this business to, to run in that part of um, the Isle of Purbeck. So all these things, I think, helped me to visualise a woman of 86 who although could in some ways be forgetful she is I'm sure you've noticed this she's forgetful when she wants to be Mm. Um, she um, leans very much on the idea of oh I'm an old lady I live on my own Um, you know the memories are very strong in fact she's really doing exactly what she wants to get William round her little finger and it takes him a long time to realize that she's playing a kind of game with him when you carry a book around for so long in your head, I don't think you're aware about the amount of thinking you're doing. I mean, you know, waking up in the morning and you have somehow thought in the night even more about this person. And also it's cumulative. You find that you watch something on television, you think, oh, that's interesting. So that's what they were doing in the 1920s. Or you um, you read a book or uh, you have a conversation with maybe with somebody elderly about the way they remember things. And it's it's all adding adding itself up in your mind I think I hope I'm not bogging people down in detail that they don't need to know Um, I hope by concentrating on quite key dramatic moments that people are going with with the story even if there are quite sudden um, you know I'm asking quite a lot of people reading this book I hope I hope they enjoy being having a lot asked of them Um, but I, I think it's a matter really of I believe very strongly that every reader brings something to the book. Um, You know, a book is only finished when when somebody is reading it. So my version of, um, I don't know, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice will be different from yours. And I I hope, too, in this book, that maybe the gaps I leave, people will be supplying different parts of their own experience in the gaps. I'm surprised that you're okay with that. I always thought that if I'd... (laughs) If I was an author and I'd slogged away on a book for two years or so and then the reader came away with it with with a completely different idea of the story I'd wanted to tell than the one I've actually told, I'd always thought that would be, be a bit frustrating. Do you not find that at all or is that half the joy? I suppose I'm asking, when you've published this book, yeah. whose is it? Is it still your story or is it the world's? 
Um, I think it belongs to the people in the book. I, 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 they have become so real to me. I think it's their book, and we are watching their lives. And all of us, in, in, in as much as if, if somebody walked into the room where we are now um, and neither of us had met him or her before, we would both have very different impressions of that person based on our own history and our own prejudices and um, um, what we're going to do later in the day. And if we compared notes afterwards, do, do, you do that quite often with friends, and, and um, someone will say, well, I didn't like her at all. I thought she, I thought she was very abrupt. And I'll say, oh, no, I, I didn't get that impression at all. I thought she was really friendly. And I love that. We, we all think of each other in very different ways all the time. And I think that's what a book does too. I, I'm, I would be really... I would be pleased and happy if the people in the book had become so real that you and I and other people reacted to them in different ways. Let's talk about language then. How much time and attention are you paying to the way that your story is told? So simply putting one word after the other. I gave a lot of thought to that. um, A lot of thought, partly because um, obviously it was set, it is set in Dorset, in Victorian Dorset, the way people spoke was so different from the way we speak now. Um, it would be very hard if you were suddenly transported back to the Isle of Purbeck in 1878. You probably wouldn't understand a word people were saying. Um, the The vocabulary was different. The accent was different. The rhythm of speech was completely different. So I spent a long, long time reading Victorian poetry, William Barnes, um, listening to BBC recordings of of real old Dorset accents to get the rhythm of the speech because I thought I can't reproduce it exactly but I have to have that rhythm of speech Um, certainly when Mary is talking because she's an elderly woman and she still has those she will have an oral memory of the way people spoke um, when she was a child and also the fact that then in Dorset to talk religiously would have been second nature. People, uh, they went to Sunday school from when they were tiny, they went to church every Sunday. Um, The scriptures, uh, the Bible were in their speech. Because I I know, I spoke to a friend about the book recently, she said, she's very religious, Mary, isn't she? And I said, actually, she isn't. It's just... That's the way she thinks. That's that's she's a she would have had it drummed into her as a child. So to compare people's actions to things in the Bible and to um, come out with biblical quotations would be completely natural to her. And I also wanted to get the sense of her being a real storyteller because she's running ring ra- rings round William, partly because she is a good storyteller. So she has to be able to speak, for me anyway in a way that was quite visual with 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 um she has to be she has to have a, um, a gift of keeping him uh listening to her when really he doesn't want to be he's got far more important things to be doing than sitting in an office um listening to mary talk about things that happened 60 odd years ago i want to talk about tone very quickly before we end um it's quite a hard question for me to articulate really so the book the cover of the book is kind of like a red and an orange kind of a furious fire to it. Yes. But it also, there's something quite homely about it. And I think that's echoed in the tone. I think the tone of it is almost kind of like villainous country file on the telly. <laughs> oh, that's a wonderful. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? How much thought are you giving to the tone? The fact that, because as you say, it is a historical novel. Yeah that evokes things that brings things to mind and you're not using language that we use nowadays 
and that will automatically make things a bit more, for want of a better word, quaint. Yes. It's not quaint, but you, you know what I mean. And then there's also this, uh, this edge of it being a thriller in there. Yes. How much thought are you giving to the, the tone of the story and the voice with which you are telling it? Well, a lot. Uh, um, I, I think I did think about it a lot. Um, because it's set in 1944, I did want there to be a tone of tension because obviously nobody knew at the time uh, what was going to happen. Everybody thought there was going to be a, another push into Europe, the final push into Europe. So I, yeah, I didn't want to anybody to speak uh, in a way that would make anybody think but nobody spoke like that in you know you wouldn't have used that word in 1944 but at the same time you want it to be accessible you want people to enjoy the story so you can't tie them up in things they don't understand or in or in language that that's impossible I did also quite like this sounds terrible doesn't it I did also quite like the contrast between that rather warm speech and the awful things that both Mary and William are confessing to. They are both guilty. They are both horribly guilty of, of, of things that happened a long time ago. And I quite like that contrast between, as you say, this warmth, this sort of um, people in a village talking to each other, talking about you know what they're doing that day and whether there are any biscuits and um, with contrasted with with things that happened in the past that are that are almost too awful to describe i think i think i quite enjoyed the tension between those two things too that is it then for this week's writer's routine thank you so much to marianne kavanagh uh, her book should you ask me it's out right now it's her third published novel and you can find links to all of her stuff online on our website writersroutine.com now next week we've got something very good on the show we're chatting to the author Garrod Conley all about his critically acclaimed memoir, Boy Erased. It's being turned into a film with Russell Crowe and Nicole Kidman. It's a huge bestseller. And we'll talk about the shocking story behind his story next time on Writer's Routine. Now, in the meantime, I'd love for you to give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram if you've not done so already. And if you can as well, please leave us a review on the iTunes podcast store. Uh, tell someone that you don't know about this show on there. It might really help some people out. We've got over 30 episodes worth of top author tips uh, to help struggling writers and it'll get us pushed higher up the podcast charts. Uh, And you can find anything else that you might need over at writersroutine.com. And I will see you soon with Garrod Conley and his writer's routine. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.